Hello, welcome everyone to the Inspiring You show where we shine a light on healing whole health in our lives. We believe that in healing your story, you can transform your life. We are here to provide hope, tips, tools, resources, and a community so no one feels alone in this journey called life. I'm Henry, an intuitive empath, mindfulness meditation teacher, dowsing Reiki master teacher, and energy healer. This, my friends, is a vibrational experience, a remembering of the truth of who we are. The content is light encoded to assist you on your journey if you wish to receive for your highest good. Welcome to the show, everyone. So May is a time to raise awareness for those living with mental and behavioral health issues, or what I really like to say is challenges, and to help reduce the stigma that so many experience. So May is the Mental Health Awareness Month and is recognized in the United States each May and has been observed every year since 1949. The purpose of Mental Health Month is to help eliminate the stigma associated with mental illness, mental health challenges by raising awareness of mental health conditions and those who have them. Mental health is an incredibly important part of overall health symptoms and we really need to join together to advocate for improving our world's mental health care system. So as many of you know, I am an equal opportunist when it comes to Western and Eastern modalities. If there is a beneficial tool to support my human's overall health, to be in full health, vitality, vibrancy, and beingness, and to allow my true light to be embodied and shine out, then I use curiosity energy and I check out that tool to see if it resonates with me and can really help me care for my human to feel its best. So when I was a child, the guides, the spirit guides for highest good really gifted me in many ways. But one of the things they gifted me was with a mantra tool. They gifted me, I was in a, I was in a not okay way as a child. I was probably really upset about, I'm not really sure what, but they said to say, I'm okay, I'm okay, I'm okay, I'm okay. I have been using that since I was a wee one. Those simple yet sacred words have supported me shifting to groundedness, safety and alignment again and again. And it really was the beginning of my energy healing training. And it was also the beginning of planting seeds of how psychology can support me. As my human has grown, I, have read a lot of psychology books and realized that the guides back then were really teaching me the essence of how to reframe, utilize language, and so much more. I also love words and language, and I love to look up words. So when I did, I looked up the word psychology. Psychology is a scientific study of human behavior and mental process. The word psychology is derived from two Greek words, psyche and logos. Psyche refers to mind, soul, or spirit, while logos means to study knowledge or discourse. Therefore, combining the two Greek words comes to psychology. It refers to the study of the mind, soul, or spirit. And when I first read the definition, I understood why the guides many years ago have really encouraged my interest equally in Western and Eastern modalities, because it's finding tools that can support the human so there can be a harmony for mind, soul, and spirit. So today we have a very special guest, Melody Murray. She is a dear friend of mine. We met many, many years ago. 
While we're working as producers on a television documentary series, Melody is a now a licensed marriage and family therapist, as well as a child mental health specialist. Melody's originally from Texas and moved to Washington State in 2013 after spending 12 years working as a television producer and director in Los Angeles, California. With a master's degree in clinical psychologist, then it's clinical psychology. She counsels adults, adolescents, and families, teaching them how to manage emotions and correct behaviors that stem from trauma, stress, depression, anxiety, low self-esteem, and abuse. Melody is also a motivational speaker, teaching on topics such as self-care, effects of childhood trauma, coping techniques, creating and maintaining boundaries, and managing suicidal ideation. So today, we are going to be talking about suicide, which is why one of the reasons why I wanted her on and because she's a dear friend and we have so much in common in terms of career transition and much more. Welcome, <laughs> Melody. Thank you so much, Henry. I'm happy to be here. Thank you. So today we're gonna to be talking about suicide and suicide for the most part is really, it can be really an uncomfortable topic in the collective. It is one of those at this time, sometimes taboo topics that yet I feel is really begging for a frank and open discussion. Talking about suicide can be disconcerting, yet it's important for all of us to become better educated, more conscious about it, to allow to work on prevention, removing the stigma, and also helping us to have tools. So before Melanie and I really begin, I wanna say to anyone out there who's listening, if you are having suicidal thoughts, depression, or any condition that might be worsened by this podcast, episode, then please consider listening at another time or having someone else listen to it and brief you gently on the contents or skipping directly to the suggested tips, tools, possible treatment, which could be tips and tools Melody suggests at the end, or if it's beneficial for you to have your energy clear, we will be doing a short energy healing meditation, or if you need further assistance, please call 911 or a health practitioner to support you because we really want to make sure you have the support that you need. And so if anything is possibly triggering, please let yourself receive that help because this is a topic that I really feel strongly about as an empath because I can feel into the collective energy field and I can feel at times the pain that exists around this. And I've also worked with many clients to support them finding tools to release from the energy of suicide. And many years ago, I had a very difficult time in my own life where I actually contemplated suicide. My higher self soul and guides, spirit guides, they came in to help my human. Yet I realized I had been, you know, I had been practicing for a long time in working with my higher self and my guides to support me. So there were some tools in place since I was a child and not everyone may have the similar experience. I will say though, in my human experience, it was really still unnerving and very scary for my human to be at that point of the crossroads where I didn't know if I could continue on in life. And since then, I have talked to so many people and found that people that I've talked to about this and asked, have you had suicidal thoughts or contemplated each time the person has said yes, which really surprised me. And I didn't, I thought maybe I was alone with it. So in terms of the research over the past 20 years, 
the number of U.S. adults attempting suicide has jumped, and this indicates that a significant portion of our population is experiencing severe emotional issues or at very least high levels of stress. And according to the CDC, the Center of Disease Control and Prevention, suicide is the leading cause of death in the United States with 45,979 deaths in 2020. That is about one death every 11 minutes. And the number of people who think about or attempt suicide is even higher. In 2020, it's an estimated 12.2 million American adults seriously thought about suicide. 3.2 million planned a suicide attempt. 1.2 million people attempted suicide. And suicide affects all ages. In 2020, suicide was among the top nine leading causes of death for people between the ages of 10 and 64. Suicide was the second for people ages 10 to 14 and 25 to 34. And so what has really caught my attention recently is the alarming aspect of the suicide and the frequency among young people, particularly college students. And suicide is the number two leading cause of death for college students. One in four people aged 18 to 24 seriously contemplated suicide in June, according to new research from CDC. And I just was like, okay, um, because I have had this had experience with it and I just have so much compassion and empathy for anyone who is, you know, moving through this experience and in this this level of pain and is confused about where to get help or how. And then also just the families that are then trying to figure out maybe what to do for a loved one or if a loved one has committed suicide, what to do in terms of where they are now that I wanted to have Melody to come on because she is, you know, she has been training in this and specializing and working in it for a number of years. So I'm grateful to have her here with us on now. And if it's okay with you, Melody, I'd love to just jump right in and just, you know, maybe just in your experience, talk about it. What is suicide ideation? What is the difference between suicide and attempted suicide and anything else that in terms of somebody who is new to the subject could, you know, could support them in understanding or bringing um, some connective tissue to if you could help us with that. Certainly. Uh, suicidal ideation is everything involved in having the thoughts on wanting to end your life. So it's thoughts and behaviors, rehearsing even just those strong feelings that you no longer want to be alive. Um, suicide itself is, you know, it's, it's, it's a tough subject to talk about because it's something that hits, you know, every age group, every ethnicity, every socioeconomic group. Uh, it's one of those things that's, it's an equalizer in a lot of ways, yet it's not something that we talk about. And so anytime it happens, there's always a sense of shock and awe when we hear that it has happened, but it, it's happening more frequently. And so that shock and awe, I feel there's a big part of that that really needs to diminish. Because if we're going to stop this, if we're going to curb this and decrease this in any way, we've got to talk about it. Um, it is an uncomfortable thing to discuss. It is. I'll, 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 I'll give you that. And even amongst the mental health profession, there are many therapists that don't work with clients that have suicidal ideation. Most don't. You know, in Washington State, 
we are all required to undergo training in suicidal ideation, but that's something that's relatively new. And the reason it happened is because a businessman whose wife was an attorney, this businessman, um, he took his life and his wife wanted to sue the therapist. She wanted, she, she wanted answers. She wanted someone to feel the pain that she was feeling. And what resulted in this really horrible situation was she contacted a social worker that is, or at least was, she's retired now, but she was the head of social work at one of the local universities. And they went to the state capitol and they, you know, raised a ruckus and had an amazing result, which is every single therapist has to have suicide training, suicide assessment training. And the shocker is for a lot of people is how was that not a part of the plan to begin with? And unfortunately, that's still the state in so many other states. That's the case. Not every therapist gets the training to assess suicide. So is that not the um, case here in California? Are the standards different? I don't know. I don't know. I um, I'm not exactly sure what the training requirements are down there. But in Washington, you have to go undergo six continuing education hours of training in suicidal ideation and assessment and treatment. So that if someone presents to you in this state of mind, you can ask all the right questions and you can direct them in the right directions to get help, to get support, to manage those emotions. But it's unfortunate that a lot of people, they don't understand and it's uncomfortable. And I think the reason why it's so universally uncomfortable is because we've all been touched by it. We've all been touched by it, but no one talks about it. So I think that's a big reason why everyone's so uncomfortable talking about it, because it is a thing that, that, you know, is, there's a lot of shame involved in it. I mean, at one point in, in our lifetime, suicide was illegal. So if you decided to take your life and let's say you survived your attempt, you would get arrested. And it's one of the, re isn't that mind boggling? When was this? This was in the early uh, 20th century, 18th, 19th century. Absolutely. Illegal. You get arrested for having so much mental and emotional and physical pain that you can't take it. Isn't that ridiculous? And so not having the support in place. Wow. That says so much about our conditioning. Mm -hmm. Well, and it's, and because of that, because of that thought process, it's one of the reasons why we no longer say this person committed suicide because committed suicide, it's as if it's an illegal thing like committing homicide. Mm. So what is the, in terms of the, the wording, because I may have even said that part of it, um, what is the language that would be beneficial to use? Died by suicide. Died by suicide. Mm -hmm. You know, it's interesting died. It brings up, I have more sadness when I connect into it as opposed to committed kind of gives you some uh, kind of makes, yeah, distance. Interesting. Um, interesting. So died by suicide is the language then. Okay. So do you think that's part of the changes that could really be beneficial is then even us starting to make the language changes, you know, in our individual collective media, in the storytelling, because I do see a lot, even the articles that I was reading on this was committed suicide and not died by suicide. 
Mm -hmm. It is necessary. You know, anytime we get more information about something, anything, I think terminology, you know, either updating old terminology or creating new words that will help people understand what's going on with them and the people around them. I think it's extremely helpful and very advantageous for us all because we have to have conversations about uncomfortable things because then if we do that, if we actively engage in that, then there are fewer uncomfortable conversations than we have left to have. Absolutely. And it's the inviting in too, where I look at it as in the language change, bringing in wise speech and bringing in wise speech, you're opening up the consciousness on it and you're getting deeper into the heart, offering more compassion, which I think is part of the uncomfortable aspect for people is that I I think there's this fear sometimes that it's going to I don't know. Like it may, there's a fear about it. And let's it's talk like about it. Like what is it? It's, it's like birth control and sex. So many people don't want to talk to kids about sex and birth control because they think if you bring up the conversation, that means they're going to dive into it and just start having sex with everybody. And we all know that's not true. But even though knowing it's not true, it doesn't mean that people still don't hold, you know, those those thoughts and feelings. And that's the shame about it. Just because you talk to someone about how they feel about themselves, the thoughts of taking their lives does not mean that your words are pushing them towards that decision. Not at all. I think that shutting down those conversations and not talking about those conversations, that's what further isolates someone. It's important for us to normalize this because just like you said, you've spoken to so many people and and the people that you've spoken to They've said, yes, I've had this thought at some point in my life. And it's the truth. You know, I worked for several years in an emergency room doing suicide assessments. Well, all I did for 12 hours a day was talk to people, talk to patients, talk to their parents about how they're feeling, why they're feeling like they want to take their life, and what can we do to shift that way of thinking. And it's you know, as, as much as it's happening within our communities, and especially at this young age, you know, coming on the tail end of, you know, lockdown because of the pandemic, I think everyone has just been pushed to their limits of stress and sadness and loneliness. We've all experienced such a hard time collectively that I think that it's kind of ridiculous that people are shocked at this day and age that someone just says enough, enough. And and I'm one of those strange people like, and it's it's because I've talked about it for years, daily for years that it doesn't freak me out as much anymore. It still freaks me out, but it doesn't freak me out as nearly as much anymore. Do you think that in terms of the part of the, you know, people being afraid to talk about it um, cause from some of what I, when my, through my experience, what I was seeing is one, it was almost like they were afraid to take that responsibility of what I was sharing with them, that they were scared and immediately they, they really went into either, I either saw like fight where they were like fighting, like, don't say that. Or oh, they you're were fine. It's okay. Yeah, like, You'll and then, or it. hanging up on me like immediately. Um, or, um, 
And let me just, okay, let me just uh, give some backstory information because I realized I shared with you, Melody, before, but not in terms of our audience. So when I was going through my experience of um, just having just real that real, I mean, let's just, let's just get into it. <laughs> so when I was working in television, as Melody knows, because she works in television, you are sometimes working you know, 18 hour days, seven days a week. And I was in the trenches of working show after show after show. I ended up getting um, pneumonia after pneumonia. I just was really just exhausted beyond belief. And, um, you know, you're just, I took a couple months off because I was sick because it's a gig economy. Um, it's like, oh, right, I, be I better get onto a show. And, and I had that, I better get onto a show. It was the holidays time. It was, um, it was just after Thanksgiving. So if you're not on a show between Thanksgiving, Christmas, in television, oftentimes you might not get on another show till like March. That's, mm -hmm. that's the reality. And it's scary. Of no matter how far you climb and no matter how much you've, you know, been recognized and you've got the accolades and you've got the skill. It's still scary when you don't know when your next paycheck is showing up for like six months. Uh -huh. <laughs> so uh -huh. sometimes you are jumping on shows and like, all right, you're, you're kind of bargaining with yourself. Um, yes, I'll get on the show. It's only gonna be three weeks. I can do three weeks. I can do three weeks. No big deal. So there was an opportunity where I was an executive producer and I was going to be a consulting uh, EP. So, oh, less responsibility. Yeah, or so you thought <laughs> right the <laughs> amount of money oh less responsibility this is great <laughs> yeah so i got into the show and um the executive producer uh just had not slept for like weeks or days whatever the case and so she was really running on um empty um you know and and through running on empty she was having moments of bursting through having anger outburst and um, that show particular was a show that had on 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 camera therapists and off camera therapists because it was a type it was a therapy style um, house reality show that people lived there for you know twenty four seven for a couple of weeks, and so this and that's rare for them to have that many per mental health professionals. Most shows don't have any. Well, so and too, yeah, for that show, they had to go through to get on um, the show. They also had to go through a whole psychological evaluation. So that being said, so there were therapists that were on um, set. Um, what happened though is the EP that was running the show. She, I came into a situation where she was in full just rage, really just yelling at everyone and. And as an empath, I could feel it. I was like, wow, I could feel her pain. I could feel how much pain she was in. And that is not a comfortable feeling when you are the person who is the one who's expressing that kind of outrage. And then it's not comfortable on the other side receiving it either. It's an uncomfortable situation for everyone. That being said, I had just gotten onto my shift. I walked in to say hello and she, the, the, the EP um, screamed at me so she screamed the person screamed at me so hard that I disassociated and because Whoa. the amount of meditation I do I witnessed myself disassociating and the person sounded like Charlie Brown's teacher like wah, 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 wah. I couldn't yeah. hear the person and I was like and and one hand I was like oh wow I'm in a disassociation I can't mm -hmm. I can't actually hear the person I can't understand them the same time Melody, it was probably one of the scariest moments of my life because I couldn't, I couldn't understand what they were saying. Mm -hmm. And 
it was so scary. And then I just got, you know, my guides came in, like, like literally made me turn around and leave the situation. And so I walked away from the EP and the EP was really even angrier at me. So that, that situation, let's face it, I already had PTSD though. That situation mm -hmm. really exasperated my PTSD. And then from there, I went into this like mental and emotional, physical tumble of like such pain. And that was, um, that was the turning point where as I was walking away, um, a producer was crying, like, like that real heavy crying, that grief, <gasps> like, Mm -hmm. and, and I just grabbed the person and I just was hugging them saying it's going to be okay. And then I said to the person, I'm done. I'm never like, I'm never taking another show like this. Every time I take a show like this, I'm a jerk to myself. I'm done. And I don't remember saying that because you can speak to this about what happens in a situation like that. You lose some of your memory, mm -hmm. but the person told me later and that was it. Like, I was like, I'm not this, my mental and emotional and physical health is not worth the situations because at that point in television, as you can speak to as well, they just weren't set up. And what's interesting is the therapists were there witnessing, but remember they're there to do a job for television on air, not for the staff, which probably goes to the point where what you were saying about how that person in Washington, um, until that situation, there wasn't training in suicidal ideation, which makes me feel like it was voluntary. In television yeah. in entertainment, it feels mm -hmm. like that there needs to be some sort of training with therapists who are on sets to also recognize trauma that's happening among the cast and crew to help people. So I know I just said a lot, but first, can you break down what PTSD and we will take it in parts? Sure. Um, PTSD is post-traumatic stress disorder. Uh, PTSD is not something that is a definite. Something, a traumatic event to me may not be a traumatic event to you. And a traumatic event it can be anything. It can be from abuse, physical, emotional, verbal. It can be a car accident. It could be a medical procedure. It can be a fight, a physical fight. It can be a conversation. And it's different for everyone. Everyone has a different threshold of stress. And so one of the defining characteristics of PTSD for several people is the thought that your life is in danger. Now, that is a broad thing to say, because in that moment that you were being screamed at, you knew that you weren't physically in danger, but your heart and your head knew that your spirit was in danger, and that counts. And I think that's an important thing, important, important distinction for people to make and for people to understand is it doesn't have to be that someone's got a gun to your head for you to be traumatized. Um, it's just you being shifted out of your safe space. That, that is it right there in a nutshell. And I think it's really important for people to understand that shaming someone because they say they've been traumatized and you wouldn't be traumatized under the same circumstances is so wrong. It's so disrespectful. It's dismissive. There needs to be a respect for every individual's way of handling things. Uh, um, excuse me, um, disassociation is more common than people realize. Disassociation 
will happen when your mind wanders without you saying, I'm going to now focus on these thoughts. Disassociation in its simplest terms, daydreaming. You know, just sitting somewhere and your mind wanders and then you didn't realize that your mind was wandering. Then all of a sudden you snap back to where you currently are. You've disassociated. It also happens when we're in the midst of something traumatic. And it is something, it's, it's a survival technique that our mind chooses for us. And that's why whenever you are, let's say you're an adult person and you are trying to think about certain events that happened in your childhood and you've got gaps, whether it's weeks, months, or years, and it's very common to have chunks of time that's missing, that's because there's been disassociation. You've been involved in something so traumatic, the brain shuts off to protect you. And that is what's going on. It is a move for the brain to protect you. And that is, and, and it's not something that you can predict. It's not something that you can turn on. It is, it goes back to our primal states, you know, fight, flight, or freeze. Those are responses that were created, you know, back in those days where, you know, our brain, you know, we, we still can't control this. And I think that that's a beautiful thing that our brain decides in a split second what it should do when it's under stress. And the beauty in that is we dismiss ourselves a lot. We don't trust our instincts. There are so many things that we do to turn off these inner messages that if we get into that state, hey, you're gonna get hit by a car. Hey, you could get punched where the brain makes the decision in a split second and you run or you freeze or you fight back without giving it much thought. And I think that that's, it's a beautiful thing, but it also could be very frustrating when you have chunks of time that you just don't remember. You don't know what happened in that moment. You don't remember what you said. Which I think why I wanted to talk about it because I don't think people recognize the signs. And if I hadn't been doing meditation for so long, I'm not sure I would have observed the level I observed. Like it was like watching myself above me going through this experience and it in the after effect. And so just to in the after effect was you can have symptoms of like flashbacks, nightmares, severe anxiety, uncontrollable thoughts about the event um, that can add to then in terms of like suicidal thoughts. Right. And so for me, the stress of production, the hours not taking care of myself when I was on the road, experiencing then like long after that traumatic event on top of it. And then all of a sudden being like, I like, you know, that was like TV for me was a dream, like my dream job since I was a child. And what no one tells you is that your dream job, you have to also understand how to handle stress and how to actually then understand some of the politics of the workplace. And also being Which never gets discussed right. until you're in the trenches of a hellish situation. And also for us, we'll just say like being women in the industry the and being women in an industry with a genre that when we got into it really hadn't been, um, it was just being created. And so mm -hmm. we were on the forefront of something, which means, so there just were naturally a lot of more men that were in it. So to be a woman, to be able to be in that environment, 
you have to kind of move through and you have to kind of have street smarts through it. So it was like this moment with the PTSD, in some ways I can look at it as a gift because that was like a defining moment of where finally for me, I was like, I gotta say no, like I gotta take care of myself. I gotta put myself on the front burner. Like this just is not okay anymore. And um, I'd taken enough of the, the abuse. That being said, going back to then suicide, I was in so much, I, I had panic attacks going on after the PTSD, after that, that incident. Mm -hmm. And I also didn't know that um, because there's no HR specifically to go to in television. By design, I right? believe by design. And so where do you go for help? And then also you don't want, you're, you're, you're in such fear that, oh my God, if I tell anybody, I'm, I'm never going to work again. And yep. I'm, I'm going to get, I'm, I'm going to, they're, they're going to, whoa, I'm going to get blackballed. People aren't, are going to think I'm not tough enough. I can't oh. handle this. And my career oh. is over before it even really began. And then how am I going to pay bills? Right. I mean, mm -hmm. there are a lot of swooshing thoughts going around as you're, as you're in this like real trauma place. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, I had a moment one night where it, it was like, I, I did have a couple glasses of wine, I will admit. And in that moment, I was like, oh my God, like I'm in so much physical. And also I was in so much physical pain, like the inflammation in my body, my joints hurt so much. I was like in my early forties, I could barely walk. My it, getting out of bed, it hurt, like everything hurt. I just wanted to stay in bed all the time because mm -hmm. it was so painful to walk. Mm -hmm. And it was all the stress inflammation and everything else. And so, I had a moment, I was like, oh my God, it would just be like, just so much easier to just end it. Maybe I should just, I, and I actually thought like hang myself. And mm -hmm. I, because I have had such a strong sense of prayer and meditation, my higher self and guides like literally were like bed now and put me in bed. And they're like, you are not allowed to have any alcohol until you have moved through this. And then the next day, it was like a real, I mean, I had a real moment with my guides, like you need to do 40 day meditation sets until you're okay. And you need to start asking for help. So I started reaching out to people and I'm going to get emotional. Bring it sister. Because, and I don't know what was sadder was sharing with people where I was or the fact that they were so scared about what I was sharing that they didn't even know what to do. Mm -hmm. Like some of them like, like hung up on me, like you're fine, hung up. Some of them stopped talking to me. And yeah. some of these people were like my family, like a few of my family members. Mm -hmm. Some of them were like best friends. Mm -hmm. And I, so part of me was like, Oh, what is going on here? Mm -hmm. And then the other part, you're already in so much pain. And then to add abandonment. Yep. And the fact that they tell you to reach out to people. And I did. And I was like, what is going on here? Why don't mm -hmm. we have a society that is capable of helping people really? Mm -hmm. And so I then went to a few practitioners and I was like, whoa. <laughs> And I didn't realize, I didn't know that they weren't like trauma trained. And now mm -hmm. I have gone through all it's kinds of trauma training. Mm 
Mm -hmm. I didn't know that it was a specific specialty. So I got triggered in a few therapists office and I was like, whoa, my nerves were so, I was like, I am not feeling good. What do I need? And so, um, you know, for me, I went into a deep sense of, I, I also couldn't do um, mindfulness meditation at that time because mindfulness meditation, that can actually be triggering for PTSD. And I didn't know yep. that. I didn't know that at that time, but yes. I was like, what is happening? And I was in a program at UCLA that I had to actually quit that they didn't know because this, the research wasn't in yet in terms mm -hmm. of what happened. I will say though, um, chanting meditation, Reiki and dousing energy healing, I could do that in somatic experiencing. I got a mm -hmm. somatic, I had a somatic experiencing therapist. Nice. Um, that person helped me. And then my, my, energy healing and kundalini mm -hmm. chanting, chanting meditation, because enchanting for me, it was helping to clear and raise and helping to ground. Um, and then um, my guides were also like, you need community, you like unique community. And so I started going, I, um, I got into this LMU program that was a pair specialist program where, you know, I mean, Melody, we talk about sometimes spirituality, sometimes like, you know, God just gifts you things. And I was gifted to get into this LMU program that was all about recovery programs. And I didn't know much about 12 step programs. And our homework was to go to 12 step programs. And I was at that time, because I had such an adverse um, experience, like about reaching out to people, I was scared to reach mm -hmm. out to anybody else because I was like, oh my God, I don't want to tell anybody else because I don't want to lose any more friends or family. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so I started going to these 12 step programs and I was like, oh my God, there's amazing tools here. And mm -hmm. then, um, I found a church that was, um, non-denominational and I went every Sunday to hear the inspirational truth talk. And they had the community event afterwards where they have coffee and, donuts. And I just sat with people like people that were like 70s, 80s and 90s. And I just sat with them for a year every Sunday. And I got to tell you, they had no idea what I was going through. And they also had a prayer hotline that I could call yeah. a prayer hotline many yeah. times saying like, I need some help. Like, whoa, please, somebody mm -hmm. listen to me. And, mm -hmm. um, and eventually, like, for me, you know, I was able to really heal the effects of the PTSD and re-embody. Yet, that's one of the reasons why I want to talk to you because I think that sometimes when we're talking about uh, mental health and getting help, I think sometimes that on the other side, people don't always know how to help and that mm -hmm. can actually worsen the effects. So what do you think and what do you think that we can start to do to change things and all of it? Yep. You brought up so many amazing points and I really want to try to hit on all of them. Um, you said that you reached out to many friends and family members and you got shut down. And I think a really important part, maybe it's actually, I feel the most important part of a situation like that is to, and I know it's difficult not to, but not to take it personally, because what you're experiencing is someone else's distress tolerance. You're dealing with someone else's inability to meet you in that space. And that's not something you should take personally. But how were you to know? 
just like you said, when, you know, they say, talk to someone, ask for help. There are so many people that say, yes, I can be that person. And they're only, it's lip service. And unfortunately, that is where our society is. I think about the pandemic. And, and I remember something Dr. Fauci said a couple of years ago. He's like, what do we have to do to make you care about other people? And it's shocking, but it's not. I mean, this is, it's pervasive across so many different issues. But I think people, also what you're talking about can be really challenging on social media, where some of these some of these people that I did reach out to have like put up things about, you know, how they care or suicide prevention. And I have and to say, I've had to really release like judging or like, oh, seriously, mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm sure you care. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I had to really release that because I was like, oh, there's my judgment and there's my hurt. Mm-hmm. And, but I'm at a different point now. Mm-hmm. And so how do we release the lip service? And I think also, because that being said, if something had happened to me, the, in terms of the people that I had reached out to, it would have been that like moment of like, uh, oh, which often the case, sometimes you hear on the other side where people say, oh my God, I had no idea, but wait, did I have any idea? And it's what that did I moment. Ignore? What did I shut down? Yeah. It happens so often. And I think that, I mean, just to talk, just to go swing back to PTSD for a second, I think it touches, suicide touches our lives more than we care to admit, more than we really want to acknowledge. And I think that when sometimes people get approached with that conversation with somebody that they care about, they disassociate. They, they really shut down because it's traumatic to hear that. Because in a lot of ways, people feel that it is their responsibility to keep someone alive. And as a therapist, I know that my, I'm a licensed therapist with years of experience, and I have absolved myself of that responsibility. I give someone the tools, but I can't make anyone do anything. And I can only go on the information that you share with me. So there may be so many other factors that are happening in your world that you haven't shared that I, I can't be in control of those things. And so I think that's an important part that people need to understand that if someone decides to do this, unless you personally harmed this person, I think that you need to check yourself when it comes to your responsibility. I do think to our fellow man, we should be loving and kind and open to helping but taking the responsibility of someone else's, you know, being alive or dead, I don't think that that's fair because there are people that manipulate by using those words. I want to die. It's, it's manipulative um, under certain circumstances. And unfortunately it happens a lot and it sucks. But I think that when it comes to that harm of feeling abandoned, I don't think that there's anything worse than being abandoned by a mental health professional that doesn't know what the fuck they're doing. And unfortunately, there are many of them. There just are. Suicidal ideation, uh, assessment and treatment, post-traumatic stress disorder, these are all specialized situations and they require specialized training. And just because you have a license as a therapist doesn't mean you know what the hell you're doing. It doesn't mean that you know how to treat PTSD. There is, here's a way that you can find out if your therapist knows what the hell they're doing. If you've got traumatic events in your past or in your present, 
And the first things out of the uh, therapist's mouth is, okay, tell me what happened to you. Now, I'm not talking about filling out the initial paperwork. I'm not talking about that because we do need to have that background information. I'm talking about full-on session, bam, here we go. That is a bullshit therapist because you can't take someone down that road if you don't know if they've got positive, healthy coping skills. A therapist that is trained in trauma would never do that. Just wouldn't. You've got to teach the person coping skills because therapy is one hour, typically one hour a week with some exceptions, um, but it's typically just one hour a week. The, the rest of your world is out there at work, in the car, with your friends, with your children, with your partners, and we're not with you. So you will get triggered by a variety of things. And it's so important that you understand how to take care of yourself when you get triggered. And if that is the first thing that comes out of a therapist's mouth, run, run. So what should and, you look for then in a therapist? Well, I think definitely checking out websites, um, looking at their website, looking at psychologytoday.com because in there, therapists have profiles and they will tell you what they're good at working at. If you've got trauma, do not go to a therapist that just says they just have anxiety checked because PTSD is deeper than anxiety. It just is. And you don't want someone to re-traumatize you because that is what happens when you go down that road with someone who doesn't know what they're doing. Their heart may be in the right place, but they do harm. They really do harm. And I've done assessments on you know people that have been suicidal where they refuse to even try therapy ever again because they've had so many of these experiences where someone dives into the deep end of something and they have no idea what they're doing. They don't know how to help someone. They don't realize they're harming someone and it turns someone off to the field altogether. Hmm. And that's just wrong, but it happens. So then what are some, like, like you, you talked about in terms of the assessment, what would be, you know, somebody would come in, what is the assessment? Take us through um, the experience. So in a suicide assessment, they they're, they're quite lengthy, um, but, but it depends on the circumstances. So if you are in a, a mental health facility, it's a long drawn out process. But if you're just on the fly and someone said something, it can be pretty quick. So it depends on the situation. If this is someone you know, you're just a regular person, this is someone you know, and they say, you know what, I feel like I don't want to live anymore. Ask them, do you have a plan? If they say yes, what is your plan? And if that, that plan involves something they have access to, like a bridge or a gun or pills, and if they say, you know, you ask them, when are you planning on executing this plan tonight, tomorrow, this weekend? Concern. I have a client right now who has chronic suicidal ideation. He's almost 60 years old. He's got a plan to take his life September the 25th. We've had this conversation. We've had this conversation since last September. I know who he is, we have a bond. But when he says September, I've had other people say, oh yeah, I'm gonna do it sometime in the future. I'm gonna, that's not an imminent threat. It's scary, but it's not an imminent threat. And so that is what gets um, 
uh, that's how it's determined on whether who gets hospitalized and who doesn't, who gets an in, on involuntary hold and who doesn't. Just saying that you want to die is not enough for someone to take you and lock you in some place. It's just not. And that may seem unreasonable. I, before I got specialized training in suicidal ideation, I'd send multiple clients to the emergency rooms because they would say something that I found really, really concerning. And then they would get discharged like the same day and go home. And I'm like, what the hell? When I started doing that work, I knew, I knew why, I understood why. And it does sound, it, it, it sounds scary and it sounds like, oh, it's just people that don't care. But here's the other rub. And this is where each of us individually can play a part in this. When you're voting, vote more for than just the president. You've got to vote for local officials, officials and find out what their stance is on mental health. The reason why so many people go home, even if they have a serious situation, even if they've had past attempts, is because we just don't have enough resources. We just don't have enough beds. We don't have enough practitioners. We don't have enough. We, we just don't have enough to serve everybody, unfortunately. So, you know, you so some people position. may have get, maybe getting discharged that actually need the support and help. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, it's so interesting. What's interesting also, as you were talking about putting someone on a hold or going to the hospital, I had like a, I was like, oh, I wonder if people get in fear that if they talk about it, that they could actually end up getting, you know, sent to the hospital. Absolutely. And that, that is a big reason why so many people don't talk about it, especially teenagers. So many teachers don't talk, uh, teenagers don't speak about it because they're afraid that they're immediately going to be whisked away somewhere when they just want to open up. I remember listening to um, an interview on NPR several years ago where a young lady, she was roughly 15 or 16 and she was being interviewed. She had gone to the emergency room for a suicide assessment and she was sent there by her school teacher or school principal. Well, the interviewer was talking to her and then also talked to dad. The interviewer said to dad, what did you think when you found out your daughter had suicidal ideation? And he said, well, frankly, I was pissed off. Like, why the hell didn't she tell me? She goes and tells all these other people and she didn't say a damn thing to me. And he couldn't understand why she didn't up to, uh, open up to him. You just told her that you can't handle heavy stuff. You and, and all of your delivery, let her know that you can't handle this. You're gonna be pissed off. Mm -hmm. You showed her that previously in other scenarios that you just didn't pay attention to, but she did. And so it does happen all the time where kids will say, this is how I'm feeling. Because hey, when someone asks you, how are you doing? I think the word fine is such bullshit. It's such a brush off. And as a therapist, I do not accept fine. My clients know you never tell me you're doing fine. I want details mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, 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 and I want honesty. And when you ask someone this and they're honest with you, there's usually, there's so much judgment that comes from someone being honest when you said they could be honest with you and you lied, mm -hmm. you lied. I think you also brought up something interesting about, um, the heaviness, you know, 
you know, a lot of times people are saying, how are you? And they just want you to say, I'm fine. Mm-hmm. And so they can check it off the list. Like I care. Exactly. I asked you. They can and, check the and, box, but move on. you know, but then if you say, oh, I'm not doing so well, you see the person, somebody going, oh man, now Shit, I gotta, now I gotta do yeah, something. I gotta do something. And it, and it's like, no, you don't need to do anything. It, it's just bear witness. And, and there was, um, I was, I was listening to a mindfulness book and they were talking about a culture. I can't remember which culture, um, talking about how, when they're asked how they are, how they are, they answer for the family. And so if there's a family member that's not doing well, they'll say, we're not doing well. And even if they're doing well and their family mm-hmm. member's not, so the answer for the family. And I was like, oh, that's so interesting. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I also know that, um, you know, years and years ago, the Dalai Lama met with, a, with um, some, some uh, teachers, uh, you know, mindfulness teachers, and somebody brought up about, I'm not going to get the story exactly right, but they brought up about how there's a lot of just um, negative thoughts and a lot of self-hate and suicidal ideation. And the Dalai Lama, like he didn't understand what was, what they were talking about and that he had to actually take a moment to go process it, you know, with, um, you know, somebody that he works with Mm -hmm. and he came back and part of it is because in the West it's much more prominent Mm -hmm. than where, you know, where he's from. And it really was like, it was so, um, in some ways I feel like it was so like, it it was even more upsetting because that people didn't have that self love and that there was this level of self hate and self harm in place. And I don't know. I think that in some ways, like even what you're saying about how with that father and him saying, you know, it's almost like he's yelling at his daughter, why didn't you tell me? But at the same time, he's not able to handle the heaviness of it. And we've kind of created this society. Yeah, very much where people are protecting themselves from everything, from everything. And I think that you don't have to be an expert in this. You just don't. Think about it this way. You're at a restaurant. Your waiter is missing in action. Somebody walks past you and you go, you know what? Can I get some ketchup? And they go, yeah, hold on just a second. Or can we ask the chef not to put mushrooms in this? Oh yeah, hold on one second. That person knows that they don't cook, but they go to chef and they ask questions. And you can do that. If you don't feel equipped to handle this with someone, you don't have to. You can get a crisis line, a crisis um, on the phone, dial a crisis line and hand the phone to your friend or family member or throw them in the car, take them to the ER, take them to their PCP. You don't have to be the expert in it at all. And I think that that pressure needs to be released from people thinking that you have to have all the answers because you don't, but you, you know, but you can, you know, transport one person from this place to this place so they can get that help. Um, I had a client, she was a, a teenage girl and she had attempted suicide three times. And she, at one point, whenever we were working together, she and her mother had a very contentious relationship and that added to her mental illness. Mom was doing the best that she could. But I asked her, I said, what do you wish your mom knew? Like, what do you want her to know when it comes to helping you feel better? She said, I wish that she wouldn't freak out every time I said I was suicidal. She asks me how I'm doing 
I tell her, yeah, I'm not feeling so great. And then she immediately would wig out. And she, I understand where that comes from. That being scared is because I care about this person. I don't know what to do. And I don't want to make a mistake. I get that 100%. But I think the more you talk about something, the more you familiarize yourself with something, the easier it becomes. And so we had a there was a patient that I saw a couple of times at the hospital that I did my uh, suicide assessments from. And the patient had come in months prior, was assessed. I discharged her. She went home, came back. And I was like, I wanted to hug this girl's mom. Mom did everything perfectly to a T, which is talking her daughter through it to see what her daughter could do for herself. Mm -hmm. So instead of putting that responsibility on someone else, it's like you have to be in charge of your own mental health care. And that is a hard thing for a lot of parents to understand because when you're parenting, everything you're doing is very directive. Eat this, take a shower, don't run into traffic. But the older- So what does that look like? What did she do? She, so whenever a person- if it's a good hospital, there are many hospitals that don't do this, but let's say someone does not meet criteria for hospitalization, then they should leave with a safety plan. And a safety plan is a step-by-step document that has all the things that you can do to help yourself feel better. And it starts with identifying the, the, these warning signs. How do you know you're heading towards crisis? And what I love about safety plans is it really pushes people uh, to become more self-aware. So is that like your triggers, becoming aware of your triggers? Well, number one, coming, uh, becoming aware of what your triggers are, but then also knowing what are the physical things that you're doing and feeling when you feel like shit? Do you cry? Do you isolate? Are you, did you, do you stop eating? You stop answering your phone? Do you you order pizza and eat a lot of ice cream? There we go. A lot of Hallmark. (laughs) (laughs) It's important to understand all of those things. It's important to read yourself and understand yourself. And that's where like knowing your body and listening to your body really becomes so salient. So she asked her daughter all these questions because daughter went to school. Teacher called mom and said, she's not doing so great. You should come pick her up. Mom picked her up. They went home. They didn't immediately go to the emergency room. They went home, pulled out the safety plan. And she asked her, like, what is it that you're feeling right now that makes you know that you're not in a good place? And the girl said the things that were in that warning sign section. Mm -hmm. The next section is, what are all the things that you can do to help yourself feel better? So not relying on other people, because we don't always have access to other people. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times people feel especially depressed and suicidal at night mm-hmm. when the other people at home are in bed asleep, when their friends are, you know, I would notice a shift beds. at night at like yeah. 7 PM. As soon as actually, when that sun goes down, you mm-hmm. feel a shift in the air. Yep. So then that what is. is it? Some of the things then in terms of the safety plan to make yourself feel good, that could possibly be there. So, and there are several things, and I think that they're, they're not as complicated as people believe. It could be drawing. This young lady started coloring. She had a coloring book because she knew that every time she colored, she just felt like a little kid again, and it was a great distraction, and she was being productive, and she created something pretty. Mm-hmm. So she tried coloring. Then she went on a walk. Then she ate lunch early. And, and she did a few other things, but those are all the things that she could do on her own. She tried those things. Those things didn't help the symptoms subside. The next, you know, step would be, 
Where can you go and who can you reach out to for distraction? So this isn't you spilling your guts to somebody. This is, I'm going to go to the park. I'm going to ride my bike by the lake. I'm going to go hang out with my buddy, Johnny, because Johnny is the most hilarious person I know. And I'm always in a good mood around Johnny. You're not, you don't have to tell Johnny what you're going through. You're hanging with Johnny because Johnny cracks you up. So you don't have to spill your guts to any of these people or you know, then that's the thing. It's like you making sure that you have access to certain people that you know their vibe just lifts you up. Mm -hmm. I will say then that that's, that is what the Hallmark Channel does for me. If I, <laughs> if I'm watching like I I, I watch central. a holiday movie. I'm like, mm -hmm. oh yeah, it makes me feel happy. I'm, I'm jingle like, those I'm in bells. good spirits. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> jingle those bells. I'm like, mm -hmm. I am happy. Yep. Yeah. yeah. And How interesting. So it's interesting because as you say this, I'm like, these are all the things that in my meditations came to me that the guides had me put in place, which is so, which is so interesting, which is why they, when I meditated about putting this together, they said, look at the definition of psychology, because, you know, many, many years ago, in terms of the psyche, it was the aspect of the spirit. And it really is like that re-embodying. Mm -hmm. And so it's really interesting how um, intuitively, again, connecting into that intuitive sense that you spoke about early on, connecting into that knowledge within of letting yourself access these tools. So what are some of the other things that people um, could possibly be in that safety list, which I really liked the idea of a safety list. They had, um, part of mine was called a sun sunshine list and not in a in, in terms of toxic positivity, but something that can support me in terms of shifting back then. Mm -hmm. And really, cause when you go outside in nature of how sun, the vitamin D, how it can support you in terms of uplifting, mm -hmm. that it was really like, what can help bring in the light in terms of the darkness. And so I just, they had me calling it the sunshine list. I like that a lot. I like so, that a lot. Um, I think that distraction can be a really heavy tool in under these circumstances. You know, when it comes to processing tough things, I think that it's it's like you're a seesaw. When you feel really strong, you dive into the tough stuff. You cry about it, you yell and scream about it. But when it becomes too much, you have to back off and distraction can help you do that. A beneficial and, distraction. Absolutely. Not, we're not, not talking about distraction that's non-beneficial just being creative, you know, cook a meal, paint, dig in your backyard. And I think also changing your environment. So a distraction could just simply be you're in your house and you're depressed as shit in your house. Walk outside, go to Target, just go somewhere else where mm -hmm. the air is different and the scenery is different. So then for this, this client of yours, she did this, these aspects in her safety plan and she ended up still in working with her mom, her mom mm -hmm. recognized the signs that we, you know, it, it would be beneficial for us to go to the hospital. Yeah. She realized that her daughter had done all the things mm -hmm. and was still in this really tough spot. And so there we go. You know, they come to the ER, I do an assessment and I do hospitalize her. And it was like, and I just, I wanted to give this mom a blue ribbon because she really kicked ass and she was supporting her daughter and she wasn't dismissing her. And she was going, she was empowering her to take care of herself by saying, let's try this. Let's try that. Did you do this? We're going to do this together. Mm -hmm. And, and it just, it added a level of uh, beautiful, like empowerment and encouragement to the whole dynamic that mom trusted 
her daughter, she trusted that her daughter could read her own body and know that something is not right. And it's beyond what I can do to help myself. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a really important thing that so many people don't pay attention to. You felt like shit, but you're like, I got to take the job. I got to take this job. And, and, you know, that's an unfortunate part of what happens in this world where it's like, you're physically exhausted, but then because of the content, you become spiritually weary. And then there's the desperation because it's like, I still have bills to pay. And, and it's hard to decide. It is such a hard thing to decide. What do you do? Um, I remember years ago, I was contemplating a job offer and one of, um, one of our mutual friends, I was kind of mulling it over with her. And she says, Mel, she goes, you got to think about your health. I don't think your health is worth it. And I'd never thought about it in that way before. Mm -hmm. And I always think about it I, since then on. Mm -hmm. That is always playing in my mind. Mm -hmm. How is this going to affect my health? Mm -hmm. Whether I dive into something or decide not to dive into something. Mm -hmm. And so self-care is a part of that. It's, it's, it's self-care is more than mani petties and massages. Self-care can very much, your whole self-care routine can be free zero dollars and I think that's an important thing for people to understand self-care so self you could literally go outside and sit outside in nature on the grass and that could be self-care because you're letting yourself be in nature and having just a moment to rest and relax outside and getting mm -hmm. maybe getting some sun and enjoying that vitamin d that air that mm -hmm. that essentially is free 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 99 free. Exactly. And that's such an important thing for people to understand that they don't have to do anything extravagant to no. feel better, which is you just don't. And therapy is not for everybody. So it's not like you need to go to therapy. There's either. a lot of different modalities that can support mm -hmm. you. I will say, I wanted to touch upon something else. Um, you know, what I also noticed about that experience for me was I noticed, oh, I'm the toxic person. And I feel like some of my, my friends, my, my best friends at that time were like, uh, oh, she's the toxic person. I don't want to be around the toxic person. Uh. And I feel like we have this stigma where people like, it's okay. Like, oh, um, so-and-so so toxic right now. Like, I don't want to be around that person. Shun. Right. Mm -hmm. I, and I felt like that was part of it. I was like, oh, I'm the, I'm the toxic person. And I think that we've given permission to people that they can just cut people off because they're the toxic person. And, you know, there are so many terms that get thrown around um, unfairly, unwisely, erroneously. Toxic is one of them. Trauma, one of them. Narcissist, that's another one. Bipolar yes. as well, where people just throw this shit around and it takes the, it, it, it stops people from admitting certain things or opening up because they need certain things. And I think it's such a fucked up thing. And I think it's something that happens because of social media as well, where we are curating our life experiences for the masses. And we don't want to show anything that goes against this picture perfect life. So that when something happens in life and you don't know how to handle it, or it's, it's, it's hitting you especially hard, that's a barrier too to opening up to people because then they have to cut through this perfection thing, which we all know that there's no such thing, but we still get snared by that all the time. Mm -hmm. And then that, oh, that person's toxic. How about that person's human? How about that person is going to do something? How about that person needs some compassion? Yes. Some care. 
there. That person's hurting. Holy moly. Get them mm-hmm. some help. But if I can't own my own issues, I can't own yours. I can't carry yours. I'm denying mine. Which I think also goes to, you know, there's a lot of, um, at times, sometimes people get disconnected from the emotional body. And as an empath, like I feel everything first. So it's not like, oh, I have this like, this choice in the matter. Let me just mm-hmm. be in my in my physical or my mental or my intellectual bodies. It I feel everything, so I can't really necessarily deny it. But what I what I realized was, oh, this is curious how people use the word toxic, and also how disconnected we've come. Where it's they're so focused on their list, like their to do list, and I am not in their to do list, like. You know, at that point, those years ago, you know, help Henry work through her toxicity. Because again, I think there's a, there's what you were saying about how people may perceive it as their responsibility. Mm -hmm. No, you said something so interesting. You could have just made a call. Like we all, like we all have phones that can do three way. Hey, Mm -hmm. you know what, Henry, you sound like you really could use some help. Like, Hey, let's call, um, I, I know a friend that's a professional. Let's just mm-hmm. call and see what they have to say. Or, hey, um, hey, I know I know this crisis line. I think that you could really use some help. And if you want, I'll stay on it with you just to mm-hmm. support you because this must be really scary. Mm-hmm. And let me like three-way. Yep. Or, hey, wow, I think there's a support group. If you want, Henry, I'll just go with you. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, instead of us going out for, um, you know, wine Cocktails. and cheese, uh-huh. We're gonna we're gonna we're gonna go out to here and hey maybe I'll learn something, and and but instead what what's interesting is that you watch people scatter away from you and it's kind of like you have a disease like something mm-hmm. is like you have this virus that they're gonna catch yep <laughs> and they yep. hop you like whoa yep not it not, <laughs> not it. it like what is happening <laughs> here and it yeah. was really um at that time it was really you know devastating at that time yet also it was very curious to me about what we've created in our culture that not just one person two people at that point then at a certain point i was like oh let me see how many more people i can uh i can talk to and see what's going on here and it was like i probably told maybe like 10 people or maybe Mm -hmm. more because i as as you know we're producers too so as being a former, we make things happen. Being a former reality we TV producer, solutions. I was like, yeah, what is happening here? And as a solution, someone going towards solution and wanting to produce in that what is the possible solution, you have to understand the problem. Mm-hmm. And so I'm like, what is the problem? And what's also curious is I did reach out to several producers that are trained in looking for solutions. And that's when I realized wow, I've asked people from all different walks of life, all different professions, and it is a very similar experience. And I will say that even once I I came through the experience of healing, some of them have had a really difficult time being around me. Mm-hmm. It was like they thought, oh, I was going to happen again. And it took during the pandemic for people to come back around and people to integrate back into my life. And by then, you know, for me, I had done a lot of the work, done the, you know, forgiveness work, the compassion work. And I've also now, I've done a lot of training and reading about trauma. So I get it um, on a whole nother level, like the, you know, what you were saying. Um, but I think though, in our culture, there's something that's going on where I, how do we start making changes in terms of releasing the stigma? How do we, 
and how do we start, you know, in terms of letting go of um, labeling someone as toxic, because I can't, I have clients will say like, oh, that person's toxic. So I don't need to talk to them. And it's like, man, like, like, you don't like so much in that statement. It's like, there could be what's really happening here. Are you mm-hmm. is it something triggered in you that's making you uncomfortable? Yeah. That and that's typically the case. Mm-hmm. And, or is it, you know, yeah, because let's face it, when you're around someone who is in that suicidal um, ideation with depression, anxiety, panic, PTSD, whatever the case is in terms of, um, you know, I look at it as energies, it does feel heavy. And let me tell you, I was heavy. I will admit I was heavy. And yeah, if you were around me, I was kind of like, um, I felt like at times I was, um, you know, Charlie Brown where pig pen, I felt mm-hmm. like I was pig pen. Dusting <laughs> like I, stuff. I had up all those like just, Yeah, all the energies, like the negative energies around me. It wasn't comfortable for me either. Mm-hmm. And I get it. It wasn't comfortable for you either. Yet how do we start being bridges of light? Like how do we start changing things, Mel? Well, and I think that what you did was so important. I know it was painful for you personally, but I think that it was necessary because people need to understand that like we all need each other and we all do have the ability to support and to help. And at some point it's gonna be your turn. You know, I feel that way about, this is like a a reach, but you know, when it came to um, Nazi Germany and you know, there's that saying that goes along with it. Well, oh, it's, it's affecting those people, doesn't matter to me. Oh, it's affecting those people, doesn't matter to me. But when it starts to affect you, like who's gonna help me? things are going to get to your front porch eventually. That's how I feel about, you know, the, the talk of the abortion ban. There are so many people that don't give a shit about it because they're like, oh, I'm beyond, you know, uh, childbearing age. Oh, I'm a dude or I'm a dad. I don't have daughters. Oh, honey, they're going to be coming towards the gays. They're going to be coming towards everybody else next. It just so happens to be abortion first. So we are all intertwined. We do need to care about each other. And unfortunately, you know, it, it takes something, you know, big happening in our inner circle for us to go, oh, that's important. So I think that we need to have these difficult conversations. We just do about everything. So about how do we teach people how to care? And by care, I mean real care, not lip service. I mean like showing up when you're like, oh, this is going to be difficult because leaning in to, and first of all, let's just, I'm just going to, the years that you've done service in terms of the hospital during coronavirus, that not an easy situation. And then in terms of the suicidal ideation, in terms of the assessments, that is is like, I don't even have words for it. That is not easy to show up every day. And every day your job is to listen to someone who potentially is thinking about- Someone in their worst moment. In the worst moment. And Mm -hmm. and it's not like you're going to work and it's gonna be like, wow, it's like, that's what you signed up for, which I mean, wow. I mean, to go from being a television producer, which, is amazing in a lot of ways yet can be challenging but to being on the front lines during coronavirus the heaviness in terms of then working in terms of the suicide mal i mean you show up you show up you care and you're really bringing support and help to people so how do we teach people 
the real aspects of caring and showing up even when it's difficult. We that that starts at home. Parents need to be doing this with their children. They need to have these tough conversations. They need to have conversations like, oh, we're sitting around the Christmas tree and you're opening up this obscene amount of fucking gifts. There are other people out there that don't have food and they don't have gifts. So what are we going to do to even this out? Mm. You have to be active. And I think there are so many people that feel like I'm thinking about this and maybe I'll send a meme or two. That has been confused with action. It's not shit. You have to get in the trenches. If there's something you want to see changed in this world, you have to do it personally. And with you healing and dousing and Reiki, you're doing it. But we all need to realize that no one got to this place. If you're in a healthy, safe space, you did not get there by yourself. Mm. You just didn't. And so with me, I had the shittiest childhood you could imagine, but I had different people along the way show me kindness guide me, just love on me. And I feel a need to pay that back. I feel a responsibility to be that for other people. And I think that's the thing. So many people aren't, they're, they're, they don't recognize their blessings. And so with you though, in, in you feeling this need, I will say though, there's a healthy balance that you're not taking on the responsibility though of the heaviness. I can't. I can't for my which own is healthy boundaries, right? Yeah. It's healthy boundaries. And I think that sometimes when people think about caring, they get scared that they're going to have to take on the heaviness. The heaviness is not your responsibility. And you can have healthy boundaries where you can sit in empathy and compassion in listening to someone suffering in with real empathy and compassion. And it doesn't mean that you have to take on the suffering. 100%. Which means then just because someone else is perceived in a toxic place, it does not mean that that toxicity is going to get onto you because okay. you're in compassion and empathy, which in my world is a higher vibrational frequency. And you stay in alignment in your groundedness with full protection. Because in my world, people are afraid like, oh my God, like they're going to be too much for you. Yeah. Or they're going to steal my energy. And I'm like, People can't actually, unless you have free will, unless you say yes, someone's not going to take your energy because you have free will. And I think there's a lot of just misconceptions out there. Um, so I would say that that's amazing that you, in terms of your inspiration and guidance, that you found your way to this. And I also have healthy boundaries in something that potentially could be very heavy. Um, I will also, you mentioned your client that's um, in his 60s. Where is he now um, in terms of his, in terms of your work with him, if you can? We saw each other last week. Um, he's, he's putting together a bucket list. Now, him telling me this idea of wanting to die is not new. Um, he does have chronic suicidality. He has felt this since his teenage years, but he's always managed to fight through it. And I truly believe that he will do it again. I do. He's in a really tough spot right now. He just feels like there's nothing for him. He doesn't, he's not connected to anything. He is in a job that he's over, you know, he's over it. He's not in a relationship. He doesn't have children. And so he's in a tough spot for sure. Do you feel like he feels like in some ways he has nothing to live for? That's literally what he said. 
He literally said those words. And so when it comes to him, um, there's another client I have that said something that tag that uh, connects with what you just said about it being too heavy, someone else's situation being too heavy to carry. One of my clients said something that was just brilliant. And she also had chronic suicidality for several years and hasn't had any type of suicidal ideation at this point. Last, she told me it's been about a year and a half, mm. no SI. And it was with her constantly from roughly 10 years old on. She's in her mid twenties. She said something that I thought was brilliant because she ended up dating someone who has bipolar, stopped taking his medication, stopped going to therapy, stopped taking care of himself. Mm -hmm. And she says, I love him and I care for him, but I will not carry him. Mm -hmm. You can care for someone and not carry them. As adults, it is our responsibility to get our shit together. When it comes to children, you've got more responsibility, but you can be there for someone without taking the responsibility of their whole life. And I have to say, this is a sad thing that sometimes people will use this as a means to put their hooks in people and make them stay. There is manipulation that is connected to some people who say they're suicidal, but they're not. They're just using it as, as a manipulative, manipulative tool. Those people are in the minority. That is not the majority of people that are in this heavy, heavy, tough space. And again, you don't have to carry that. You can give someone a phone number. I love the idea of you make a three-way call to the crisis line. You, if you are able, drive over to your friend's house and, and, and just sit in the driveway. See if you're necessary. They don't need to know that you're sitting in the driveway. Um, but there are ways to stand up and, and be there for someone without you having to feel like you have to put on your therapist hat because that's way too much to carry. And therapists don't do that. I mean, we cross our eyes, you know, dot the I's and cross the T's to make sure that, you know, we're doing things ethically, but it's ultimately each person's individual decision, what they're going to do to take care of themselves. And so just encouraging that and being with them, let's go for a walk. Let's go for a hike. Let's go bowling. You know, and it doesn't mean that you have to talk about someone's, you know, sadness the whole time you're together. You can set boundaries around, you know, how you hang out with someone. You have every right to do that. But I think it's also important to understand that someone hanging out with you that's been down this road, it doesn't mean that it's on their mind 24 seven. Well, it I think that's matter. also too part of the stigma where where people think like you become that you become identified as that, which mm -hmm. that's not your true essence of who you are. Mm -hmm. And it's it sucks. Like you were talking about, like like I think of just identity and and what does that mean to be in a certain state? And and you have this moment, and it's a tough moment. And like you said, you spoke to so many different people that they all said that they'd had SI suicidal ideation at some point in their lives. And that is the truth. And that is something that gives me a sense of peace is that most of us walking on this planet have had this moment where either you say, I want to die or I just need to escape this. I just need to escape this. I need to feel differently. I need to be somewhere else. I don't like this. We've all had that moment. But what gives me a sense of hope is that most people do not attempt to take their life. They don't. And so that is not to say that you don't take someone's declaration seriously. 
but it can be helpful to understand that sometimes these moments, they are fleeting and emotions by definition, they're temporary. It's, you know, things do move on and, and they go away, but I think it's unfair to cast that as someone's identity. Um, and sometimes people that do that with themselves, you know, they get so caught up in depression. They're just like, I'm the suicidal person. I was like, no, you don't have to be. If that's how yeah. you choose to identify, that is you. And that's a self-esteem issue. Yeah. Which is a different thing. And a, I will, yep. you know, also you said something, um, like I, I, at that time, I would label things like, okay, I need to go do something fun. Like I would push myself to, okay, let's go do something fun because I recognize like I need something fun to do. And something fun for me is like, I'm going to go to an amusement park and ride some, go get on some rides because mm -hmm. I need to also have opportunities to shift out of my head, mm -hmm. to go into my heart. And when you're having fun and you're laughing, you're usually shifting into your heart space, mm -hmm. which then makes you lighter. So we are going to wrap up, but before we wrap up, what are some of the common signs that someone may be considering suicide include? If you could just share some of those. Sure. Um, the plain declaration that, you know, I, I don't want to be here anymore. Life is not worth it. Um, also isolation. If there's someone that you were in pretty regular contact with and all of a sudden they're not returning calls, emails, they don't show up to certain events that were usually a part of their routine, you may want to be concerned about that. Um, if someone is not taking care of their physical well-being, not taking showers, not brushing their teeth, not eating well, eat or eating too much, um, that can be cause for concern. If you know someone has um, other people within their circle that has have attempted or died by suicide before. So if you know of other people that have done this, I was just reading about Sylvia Plath, the poet. Mm -hmm. Sylvia Plath, she died by suicide. Years into the future, she got divorced. Her husband's second wife died by suicide. Mm -hmm. Sylvia Plath, one of her sons, died by suicide. And so it's important to look at that too. If you know someone's family history, if something that you know that this has occurred in the family, that's a risk factor for sure, big risk factor. So it's important to pay attention to those things, like low motivation, like you just don't feel like doing anything. Are there things that you used to love to do that you just don't have the desire to do anymore? you got to pay attention to what's going on with that. And then seeing, has someone ever made an attempt before? Do they have guns? You know, do they have any kind of weapons? Have they talked about rehearsing certain things? Have they mistakenly taken too many pills? And they say, oh, it was nothing. But, you know, rehearsing suicide is a thing. It's very real. And so you have to take those things into account. And I say bring as many people you, you can into the situation discreetly because you do want to protect the person's life and their privacy but if you can reach out to a partner or a family member someone you know that person trusts do it you don't have to carry this by yourself mm -hmm. i'd you also say to too like hopelessness or feeling trapped mm -hmm. that's um, big yeah and i've also heard like people feeling like that oh people would be better off without me um things like that um mm -hmm. and then also increasing you know not only food but also drug alcohol use um Recent and then behavior um giving away like um possessions too mm -hmm. is that another one that is also something and and i think that you know i, I can go i can get so psychological about this 
I had a kiddo that I was doing a, an assessment on, and he said all the things that you would tick the boxes and say, this kid needs to be hospitalized. And one of the things that he was doing was he written a will and he was giving away his possessions, but something didn't feel right to me. It just, it, it felt off consulted with a colleague, just like you could talk to a buddy of yours and go, this is what I'm experiencing with this friend of mine. What do you think? What would you do with this kid? Turns out kiddo had high functioning autism. He'd never been diagnosed before. So huh. he had seen a movie where someone had died and it like the, the funeral arrangements and dealing with the property and all that stuff just sent the family into a tailspin. He was just trying to prevent them from being stressed out. He had no plans to kill him. So he was modeling behavior that he saw off of a movie. Mm -hmm. He was creating a solution. Yeah. And and other people on the outside were like, oh my gosh, he wants to die. Mm. No. Wow. So, which is why it's important then, as you said, inviting people in if, you know, in terms of the safety of the person protecting their privacy, but also being able to consult to figure out what's the best plan to help in terms of the Mm -hmm. care. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, I think it's so important to just, you know, come back around to if someone is resistant to help, if someone shuts down, if they shut you down, try not to take that personally. Mm-hmm. We all have been taught different ways to handle emotion. And a lot of people have been taught no way to handle stress and emotion. So it's very much important to realize that it's there tolerance level it's their um ability to handle things that has nothing to do with you personally sometimes people shut down emotions because they can't handle it it doesn't mean that what you're going through doesn't mean that you're worthless and it's not worth Mm -hmm. saving your life and being there for you so keep asking questions keep calling people keep calling that's what i realized at a certain point i realized i'm like oh we have not created um this in our society for people to understand how to process this and then also Mm -hmm. you know in terms of the care how to actually be in a care i'll say a care plan if you will Mm -hmm. creating Mm -hmm. care plans yeah um so i will say if people are also experiencing depression anxiety irritability um there also could be like humiliation or shame um with it because Mm -hmm. Um, sometimes I've heard, I can't believe at this age, I'm, this is where I am. I can't oh, believe that happened to me. Is, yeah, it's um, sad. And just, especially if you're career transitioning or, you know, we're coming out of a pandemic where a lot of, um, careers have shifted and financial, um, incomes have changed too, where then it's become really distressing. Like at this age in my life, this is where I'm at. I thought I did everything right. Um, and so really you know, I totally understand what it's like to feel in that humiliation and that shame. Mm -hmm. And I also want to just encourage people that, you know, you are worth it in terms of allowing yourself to get help and there is support out there. So is there anything else that you think that, you know, would be helpful for people to understand in terms of any other additional signs or um, any other support um, that people could use? Mm looking for therapists, there are many ways to do it. Psychologytoday.com is just one of them. There's also therapy for black girls, therapy for black men. Um, Also talking to your PCP. I I just want to bring that up for a second, because why is it important to find someone that in terms of, you know, identifying with them racially could really support you? 
it's helpful. It isn't, it isn't 100% necessary. I've had multiple white therapists. Actually, all the therapists I've had up until right now have been white. Um, and, but it's, it's helpful because there are, you know, we in America, I mean, race has been such a conversation recently for white people. It's been a conversation for everybody non-white since the moment they were born or brought into this country or decided to come into this country. So having that as a foundation so that you can understand where someone's coming from if they've got work stress, if they've got relationship stress and they're in an interracial relationship, or if you know the umpteenth you know, person has been murdered by a police officer and that person's upset, to understand why they're upset. You don't have to be this, <laughs> But I think that there are limits to that as well, because there are some people that are doing the work that have no business doing it. And they stare, you know, they generalize and they stereotype people. And that's a shame. That's why it's important to try to find someone who looks like you if you can. But if you can't, you can get helped by so many therapists because so, there are just so many different modalities. If you're going to speak with someone specifically because of a race issue, then yes, I would I would push it until you find someone that can understand where you're coming from. But if you're trying to work through everything else, anything else, there's so many qualified people that don't need to have the same cultural background. So then I think the takeaway is really allowing yourself in some ways to kind of shop for mm -hmm. um, a therapist or a modality or modalities that really work for you and finding something that resonates and to let yourself not take it personally if the first couple times it isn't the person um, that that is going to really you know work with you long term. Just know that there's hope. And so some of the tools, therapy, self-help groups, um, I would say Reiki and dousing energy healing, meditation, yoga. Um, you already mentioned like taking walks, taking frequent, you know, work breaks. Physical stuff, going to the gym, going swimming. Um, I will make a note on meditation and it's something that you brought up very early on. Meditation does get prescribed a lot these days from everybody, but meditation isn't for everyone. Yes. If you've got unprocessed trauma, you should not be doing meditation. Well, mindfulness because, meditation, I'll say. Yes. Well, it, yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, because it's like to sit alone with your thoughts and your memories is a very scary place for a lot of people to have that silence. Very scary for a lot of people. Again, I said that's if, if it's unprocessed stuff, mm -hmm. if there's still some stuff in there. Because sometimes when people have a lot of trauma, they need noise all the time. Fall asleep with the TV yeah. on. They've got music playing in there. Why, by the, the way, why chanting meditation can really be supportive because you're chanting and it's that sound. Mm -hmm. um, that but that being said, though, even sound therapy, some people can do sound therapy and it really helps them. Mm -hmm. But yet some people who have extreme anxiety, sound therapy can actually um trigger it more if it's unprocessed in that way without the coping mechanism tools. And so again, it's like really just finding out and being curious, like you said early on about what really works for you in terms of your body and, and what you resonate towards and being Don't be hopeful. judgmental, be curious. Be, uh, amen to that sister, be curious. With that, should we do a short energy healing meditation before we go? I would love that. I oh, before we that. do that, um, how can people reach you? 
Um, sure. Uh, Instagram, I am Melody, L-M-F-T, Melody spelled like music, M-E-L-O-D-Y. On Facebook, also Melody, I think I'm Melody Murray, L-M-F-T, that stands for Licensed Marriage and Family Therapist, and my website, parkstherapy.com, parks like national parks. Great. And then you can always reach out to me too. I'm more than happy to pass on her information. Yes. Yes. All right. So let's, uh, let us close our eyes. If that works for you, I'll invite you to close your eyes, lower your gaze, keep your eyes open, whatever works for you. And if, um, taking a couple of deep breaths works for you, then I invite you to do so following your breath in following your breath out. You could also use touch where your hands are on your lap, connecting into feeling your hands on your lap, if that works for you, or maybe your feet on the ground. You could be either sitting, laying down or standing, feeling the connection to your body on maybe a chair or if you're lying on a bed or if you're standing, taking a moment to let yourself become situated and grounded and i'm just going to take a moment to invite reiki energy healing in if you wish to receive reiki you merely have to say yes i'd like to receive reiki if you don't that's okay reiki respects free will now i want you to imagine sense be in knowingness of beautiful white light infused with Reiki. If that works for you, letting yourself take it in, letting it go to anywhere there is stress, or if there's any heaviness or sadness, depression, letting it clear, cleanse, release, rejuvenate, Letting it release and rejuvenating. Letting yourself shift deeper to the heart space. And we're just going to call in the energies of care, compassion, loving kindness, creating the sacred space to allow yourself to feel the care, the compassion, the loving kindness, letting yourself be held in this space. As you breathe in, this white light energy, and as you breathe out, what no longer serves you. As you breathe in, this white light energy, breathing out, what no longer serves you. Letting yourself feel the love, the care, how much courage you have for showing up. We see you, we hear you. We are in the space of compassion for you. Recognizing how difficult it can be, how challenging. Letting this beautiful white light come in 
to clear, cleanse, release, rejuvenate, refresh, reground, realign. And if you wish to uplift for your highest good in the gentle way possible. Taking a couple more deep breaths, if that works for you. And then when you're ready, bringing awareness behind your eyes, starting to wiggle your fingers, your toes, and coming back into presence, and welcome back. Thank you, Henry. Thank you, my friend, and thank you, everyone, for joining us today. We so appreciate every single one of you, and we hold such love, care, and compassion in our hearts for you. We know how difficult it can be, and we just want to let you know that you are not alone and that each of us is here for you, and we are sending out care and compassion to you to let you know that you are not alone and please feel free to reach out if you need any additional support. Thank you so much for joining us. So before we sign off, I did want to say if you or someone you know may be struggling with suicidal thoughts, you can call the U.S. National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK-T-A-L-K or the numbers are 8 255 time a day or night. The crisis text line also provides free 24-7 confidential support via text message to people in crisis when they dial 741-741. If you are outside of the U.S., um, please um, reach out to the Suicide Prevention Lifeline number that would work for you. In the U.S., we also have 911 um, whatever your version of that is, yet please um, reach out for support. There is support out there. Um, there is hope out there, and there is help out there. Please know that is. Thank you so much for joining us, and please reach out if you need anything. Thanks so much.